We're going through Romans verse by verse, but we're talking about God being a keeper of promises. That the gospel isn't, isn't something new. That when Paul is writing about the good news of Jesus, he's not introducing a new concept to Jewish followers. He's not introducing a new concept to Jews. He's introducing and saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of something very old. That Jesus is God keeping his promises. And that when God invites Jews and Gentiles into the covenant family, that he is keeping his promises. That when God saves sinners, he is keeping his promises. God is being righteous. He's being good. He's being fair. And, and even if you, but if you were a Jew, you know, and we talked about this before, but if you were Jewish and you thought, man, now these Gentiles are being treated by God and I'm supposed to treat them as full-fledged heirs of my promises that were supposed to be mine, you might think God is being unfair. But Paul lays out how both the Jew and the, the Gentile were in need of salvation and that God is being righteous to both. So I, I've kind of summed up Romans 1 through 5. I, I kind of took away 5a and b that we did last week, re-kind re of uh, reformatted the, the summary. But here's how I would summarize chapters 1 through 5. Because of sin... The whole world suffered in slavery under the reign of death. Remember, Paul talks about sin and death, not just as something sin, not just as something bad that you do. It certainly is that. But he talks about it almost as if it's personified, almost as if it's a, a monster, uh, as if it's a beast, as if it's a ruler, as if it's a, a pharaoh. And death, the same way that death is a ruler who reigns over and enslaves the people. Because of sin, the whole world suffered in slavery under the reign of death, but God in his righteousness... God is good. He keeps his promises. He's fair. But God in his righteousness put forth Jesus as a sin offering, as an atoning sacrifice, so that both Jews and Gentiles might be set free from their bondage, from their slavery, and freely receive, it's a gift, right? Grace. Freely receive full covenant membership and inherit the world promised to Abraham. So again, because of sin, the whole world suffered in slavery under the reign of death, but God in his righteousness put forth Jesus as a sin offering so that both Jews and Gentiles might be set free and freely receive full covenant membership and inherit the world promised to Abraham. That I, I've, I've repeated that almost every week for several weeks, that part especially about inheriting the world that God promised to Abraham. And for a lot of us, that's a weird concept. We don't normally talk about things like inheriting the world, although that is exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 4, that Abraham and his descendants would inherit the world, that we would be heirs of the world, and that both Jews and Gentiles who have faith in Jesus, the Messiah, that they are descendants of Abraham and will inherit what God promised to Abraham. But Jesus said the same type of thing, didn't he? In Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall, what? Inherit the earth, right? Um, and so that is a concept. And when you, when you remember that Paul's not introducing new stuff, he's showing especially those that are familiar with the law and the prophets and the writings of the Old Testament, He's showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of those things. And all throughout the prophets, all of the prophets said the same types of things, didn't they? They said, listen, 
One day, the Messiah is going to come. The, the prophets before the exiles, they said, listen, here's what's going to happen. You're sinful and you're rebellious and you're disobeying God and you're, you're unjust and you're treating people badly and you're worshiping idols and you're wicked. And so God is going to drive you out. Just like Adam and Eve driven out of the garden, right? God's going to drive you out. Just like he drove out the Canaanites, he's going to drive you out of the promised land. But someday, he's going to gather his sheep to himself and they're going to re-inherit the land, right? And, and if you follow the story of the Bible, you might think, well, didn't that sort of happen when they came back from exile? Mm, not really, did it? I mean, when they came back from exile, they were still under the Persian thumb, right? And, and that really wasn't a great time. In fact, Ezra and Nehemiah, those stories about rebuilding the walls and rebuilding the temple, they end with the men of God like pulling their hair out and pulling other people's hair out and beating people. I mean, they end horribly because they're like, why won't you do what's right? You, you had all this time in exile. Why haven't you learned your lesson? And so that's not the golden age of the Messiah's reign that all of the prophets talked about. It wasn't fulfilled then. And as you keep going, you have, you have the, the Greeks and then for a time, you have, you have sort of this rebellion, this Jewish rebellion, Antioch, or right after Antiochus Epiphanes, and then you have the Maccabean revolt. You've heard of that? And so the Maccabees revolted against the Greeks, and they drove them out because it was horrible. That's the same time period we talked about on Sunday, about the Jews going up and destroying the Samaritan temple at Gerizim. You know, so, so there was a time when they took up the sword, and they were going to fight, and this is going to be the Golden Age, but it really wasn't the Golden Age. And then Rome comes in, and they smash that rebellion, and they take over Palestine, and they're all under the thumb of Rome. And so all the people of Jesus' day, they're waiting. They're waiting to inherit the earth, right? They're, they're waiting to inherit the world. They're waiting to, to have the Messiah bring all of the lost sheep of Israel back together again. And of course, they think that the Messiah is going to do that by coming in with a sword and killing all the Romans, right? That's what a Messiah is supposed to do, come in and kill people. But instead, this Messiah offers himself to be killed. And by allowing himself to be killed, he takes sin upon himself and he becomes the sin offering to make atonement for not only, this is what Paul is saying, not only for, his, for Israel, but also for the sins of the whole world. So that now, because of the sin offering of Jesus, now Jews and Gentiles can, as Jesus said, become the meek that inherit the earth, can become the descendants of Abraham who inherit the world. And again, and that's why we started in, in chapter one, you know, three months ago, saying what we mean by gospel and what the New Testament means by gospel are sometimes two totally different things. But this, this is what the New Testament means by gospel because this is what the prophets meant by gospel. So, or good news or Messiah's reign or anything like that. Romans chapter 6, we talked about baptism marks the end of living under the reign of sin and death and beginning of living under the reign of grace, right? Because what's, what's the only way to get out of the reign of sin? The only way to get out of the reign of sin, the end of sin is what? Death, right? So in order to get out of the reign, out from under the reign of sin, you have to what? Die. And, and unless you want to die, die, then, then what's your only option? To die with Jesus. And at what point do we die with Jesus? Baptism, right? At baptism, we piggyback on Jesus' death. We are united with Jesus' death so that we can escape 
be delivered. I mean, again, I, I hope that when we say words like delivered and escape and rescue and salvation, all of the biblical images come to your mind, right? Things like the Exodus, that's what should come to our mind. Right? Things like the Exodus. The Exodus is God redeeming his people. It's him delivering them out and bringing them into the promised land. And that's what they always expected was going to happen when the Messiah comes and he's going to deliver them. And, and this is what Paul's saying. This is how it happens. Is you're delivered out of the reign of sin and death. You're delivered from your slavery by dying with Jesus in baptism. And baptism marks the moment where you're free. You're free. Because you have died. You've died with Jesus. His death has become your, your death. His life, his post-resurrection life has become your newness of life. And it will eventually mean the resurrection of your mortal body. So death and the beginning of living under the reign of grace, which results in obedience and sanctification and life, right? That, that baptism changes you. It has to. You, you, just because full covenant membership is a gift, and you might think it's by grace, right? Sin accumulated, and where there was more sin, then there had to be more grace, and there was lots of sin, so there was lots of grace, and the people that were the most sinful and were forgiven had the most grace, and so some people might have argued with Paul, are you saying that sinning is a good thing, and the more you sin, the more grace you get, so I should just go on sinning so that grace may abound, and Paul says what? No, by no means, you can't live in it anymore. This has to change you. Why would you go back to living under what you were living under before? That this death with Jesus and this living under the reign of grace, it leads to obedience and sanctification and life. It changes you. Then we talked about last week, Romans chapter 7. Paul says, verses 5 and 6, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the, what arouses our sinful passions? Aroused by the... Remember? The law. Isn't that interesting? Paul says the law, it's good. It's a good thing. It's holy. It's from God. It was wonderful. It was good. But because of my weakness, it arouses the passions within me. And it's because there's something wrong with me. There's not something wrong with with the law. The law is good. But what's wrong with me? What dwells in my mortal flesh? Sin. Sin. Like this brokenness like this disease like this ruler that dwells in my flesh in my weakness and I want to and Paul goes through and he says I want to do what's right and I want to do what's good I want to be obedient to the law but because of the sin that dwells in my mortal flesh I can't in fact in fact the law itself arouses these types of passions so a fleshly weak fleshly human being and the law is a deadly combination right And it arouses this. And so under the law, man cannot serve God without condemnation because of the sin and death that dwell in our flesh. But Jesus, praise God, sets us free. He says, sets us free from that hopeless estate. At the end, he ends chapter 7 by saying, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? This this rat race. I'm just trying to do what's right. I want to do what's good. I want to be obedient. I want to serve God. But... But then I don't, and I do the very thing that I, hate, that I hate and I don't want to do. He says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. That, that doesn't mean 
you like live two different lives, right? It means stop doing that and start doing this, right? And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. So Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. Now, you remember in chapter 7, he, he, at the very beginning, he drew a parallel and he talked about marriage and like a woman who is married to two different men and that's wrong and you can't do that. So you, you, have, to, you have to, one husband has to die and then you can be married to the other. Remember, it was kind of an interesting metaphor, right? Uh, challenging. Uh, but, but, but I think maybe one of the, the words that keeps coming to my mind is loyalty, right? Loyalty. And, and if you were a Jew, if you were a Jewish person living at any time, your loyalty would be to a lot of things, like, like, any, like any person of any nationality would be. We sort of, I was trying to think, you know, what would be sort of a parallel for us? Maybe we might say that our loyalty is to the Constitution. As Americans, like we, um, even when we swear somebody in, in the military, serving in public office, we, we talk about upholding and protecting, defending the Constitution of the United States. So there's like a loyalty to our, our founding document. And we, we talk about how that document is what gives us freedom and we are who we are because of that document. And, and so our, our men and women in uniform, they swear allegiance and loyalty to defend that document. So if you were a Jew, then you might feel similarly about the law of Moses, right? This is the law that was delivered by angels and given to Moses. This is what makes us who we are. This is what tells us to be circumcised on the eighth day. This is what tells us what to eat and what not to eat. This is what sets us apart. This is what makes us special. This is what makes us God's people. So if you were a Jewish person, you would feel a loyalty to the law. But Paul's argument in Romans 7 is that if you were baptized by Jesus or baptized with Jesus, then you've died. And so your loyalty is no longer to that husband, right? So if the law is one husband and Jesus is the other husband, then then after that burial with Jesus, now your loyalty isn't to the law, but is to Jesus, right? And I think if we kind of keep that in mind, that might help us with what he's going to say here. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? You were hopeless in that state before because sin dwelt in your mortal flesh and no matter how hard you tried, you couldn't serve God and do what was right without being condemned, right? Because law doesn't set you free. Law just tells you where you've gone wrong, right? And it it tells humanity and it tells especially Israel who had the law, you've gone wrong. Something is wrong with you. You're broken and you you need fixing. But those of us that are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, and he's he's quick to say weakened by the flesh, right? So it's not the law's fault. It's not that the law wasn't good or that it was bad or something. It was the weakness of the flesh could not do. So God has done what the law could not do. Namely what? Set you free, right? The law could not set you free from the law of sin and death. But God, in Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You've been set free. So where does your loyalty need to lie with the law or with Jesus 
with Jesus. That's where my loyalty is because the, the law couldn't set me free. It was good. And as Paul puts it in Galatians, it's like a, a schoolmaster. It's like a tutor. It's like a pedagogos is the Greek word. It's like this servant that watches over you. And it did what it was supposed to do. But its job was to bring us to faith in Jesus. And now that we have faith in Jesus, we don't need to be under the law anymore. All of the law of Moses, it was good and it did its role. But that doesn't need to be where your loyalties lie. Because again, we're getting closer and closer to chapter 12 and chapter 14. And the whole point there is going to be, if you're a Jewish Christian and your brother's a Gentile Christian, you need to love each other and be one family. But if your loyalty is with the law and his loyalty is with Jesus, then you have differing loyalties. It's very difficult, isn't it? When you have two people from two cultures, two ethnic groups, two ways of thinking, and then they have differing loyalties to get along with each other? If you have conflicting loyalties, it's almost impossible to be on the same page. But when you share loyalties, when you say you and I are unified, we are loyal to Jesus, we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not Caesar, not anyone else, not the law, but Jesus Christ is the Lord. And when our loyalty is shared, we're family. No matter where we come from, no matter what we look like, no matter what we eat, no matter how we dress, we're family because our loyalty is to Jesus Christ. So the law couldn't set us free and God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By, how? How did he do this? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. So just like sinful humanity, he was flesh, though he wasn't sinful. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Remember we talked about last week that the prophets talked about it like a bowl, right? Like a cup, like a cup that that had been filled up and that instead of pouring it out on humanity, Jesus himself drank it in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So now, and Paul's whole point here is about how we live, right? So the law has been required, the the requirements of the law have been fulfilled, and because the requirements of the law have been fulfilled on your behalf, then you owe nothing to the law, right? And that'd be a little bit hard to come to grips with, wouldn't it? If your nationality and your religion and your culture and your ethnicity are all tied up in this collection of documents, the law of Moses... You feel like I owe it to the law, to be faithful to the law. I owe it to my ancestors. I I owe it to my parents to be just Jewish to my core. And this is where my loyalties need to lie. Now, is Paul saying you can't still be Jewish? Of course not. Is he saying you can't still eat kosher foods? No. Is he saying you have to eat pork? No, of course not. Is he saying you have to wear different clothes or you can't celebrate or keep the Sabbath anymore? No, he's not saying any of those things. Paul, most of the time, probably unless he's hanging out with a bunch of Gentiles, he would be one who continued to observe those things, right? But he's saying that's not where your loyalties lie and you owe the law nothing. That's not what makes you a part of God's covenant people. The requirements of the law have been fulfilled and you've been set free. Not to go and just indulge your sinful appetites. Of course not. You've been set free so that your loyalties can be with Jesus. So, 
Now we can live by the Spirit. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Now you remember when he ended chapter 7, he said, then I, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So he's saying, don't, don't do that. Don't serve the law of sin with your flesh. Don't live by the flesh. Don't think with the flesh. Don't live according to the flesh. Because the people that live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh, it ends in what? Death. But to set your mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can't. We in the flesh cannot please God. Now, I think a great, if that seems confusing to you, because it seems really confusing to me. I mean, there's lots of set your mind on the spirit, set your mind on the flesh. I find Galatians 5 helps with that, right? He's having the same sorts of discussion with the churches in Galatia. And he's saying, he's saying, especially to them who think that their covenant relationship with God is about circumcision, that they're thinking fleshly. We, we tend to think like flesh is like bad, sinful, like go out and get drunk and go to orgies and things like that. And there were certainly people that that was the culture and that was some of the temptation. And it was, part of it was that. But part of it was also thinking that your religion and your relationship with God, your covenant membership is about your physical body and the clothes you wear and the food that you eat. And he said, this kind, that kind of living, it leads to the works of the flesh. And he goes through a long list of the works of the flesh, Galatians chapter 5. He says that it's things like this, sexual immorality and impurity and sensuality and idolatry and sorcery and things like enmity and strife and jealousy and fits of anger, and rivalries, and dissensions, and divisions, and envy, and drunkenness, and orgies, and things like this. All of this. It's all a big package deal. And when you, when you live according to the flesh, and you set your mind on the things of the flesh, this is what it ends up. And you've seen that in one way or the other, haven't you? You've experienced that one way or the other. Either in, like, pharisaical living... Like, I'm better than you are. I'm more religious than you are. I'm more pious than you are because I wear the right things and I say the right things and I do the right things. And that leads to divisions and envy and enmity, hatred. It leads to strife. It leads to slander. It leads to gossip. You've seen that. And you've also seen and experienced and maybe even indulged in the other extreme. But it's all part of one package where you just do whatever your appetite tells you to do. It's all fleshly. It's all indulging your appetite, isn't it? I want to think I'm better than you. You want to think you're better than me. We want to think we're better than each other. And we're indulging our flesh when we allow ourselves to go down that road to say, I'm more religious than you are. God loves me more than you do. I'm more pious than you are, right? I'm a better human being than you are. I'm a better Christian than you are. I'm more authentic than you are. I'm more real than you are. I'm more whatever, fill in the blank. We love that kind of stuff. And it eats us alive. And this is the works of the flesh. But then he says, but listen, if, if you're walking by the Spirit, here's the fruit of that. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness 
and self-control. And the only way to have that fruit is to live by the Spirit of God. You need the Spirit's help. That's what the law reveals. The law reveals that if it's just up to you to do the right thing, you fail miserably. So God sets you free from the law, gives you his spirit, and says, now I'm going to empower you to live a life of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. I will empower you by the power of the Spirit. I will help you to live the way I want you to live. Verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him, right? So that's everything he's saying. You have to have the Spirit of Christ. You cannot do this by yourself. You cannot do this without the power of the Spirit of God living within you because you are flesh. And if it's just up to your flesh, you will fail miserably every time because you're weak. We all are weak. Paul says, I was weak. All of us are weak. We cannot do it without God's help. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised, Christ, raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, right? We are debtors. We owe a debt, but not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will what? You'll die. That's the result. You know that. You've done it before. Don't go back to that. You'll die if you live according to the flesh. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will what? Live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And, and just in case anybody's tempted maybe to, you know, wonder, you know, what is this spirit? Like, what is Wes talking about? You know, like, Holy Spirit and led by the Spirit. What does that look like? I mean, Ephesians 5 tells you what that looks like. And it's, it's really sort of like mundane type of stuff. Singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Gratitude to God in our heart. It's this kind of stuff that helps the Spirit of Christ dwell in you. Be filled with the Spirit. How? Well, you, you, you read the Scriptures. You let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. You sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You sing with thanksgiving in your heart to God. These are the kinds of things that help the Spirit of God live in us. And as we focus on the Spirit, put our mind on the things of the Spirit, allow the wisdom and the inside of the Spirit of God to guide us, our life looks like, it's not about speaking in tongues and it's not about prophecy. And Paul would lay all that out to the Corinthian church and say, it's not about that. It's about love. And to the church in, churches in Galatia, it's about love and joy and peace and patience and kind. That's what it looks like to have the Spirit of God living in you. Unless we live this type of real spirituality, we're going to be playing at being religious our whole life. And we've done that, haven't we? I've done that. We've played at being religious. And it actually leads to worse things 
like pride. Oh yeah, we can kind of clean up our lives and we look good from the outside, and, you know, but we're proud of ourselves. And Paul says, I lived that, right? But this life that we're being called to is a spirit-filled life that is actually loving and joyful and peaceful and patient. Verse 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are, what? Children of God. We are God's children. And if children, then heirs, right? That's been his whole point. Then we're heirs, all of us. Jews, yes. Gentiles, absolutely. All those who have faith in Jesus Christ. If we're children, then we're heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We kind of leave that last part out, right? Provided we suffer with him. That doesn't sound, that doesn't sound too fun, right? That's kind of interesting, isn't it? And that's sort of the first, like, if kind of a statement he's put on all of this. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The, you're given grace and righteousness by putting your faith in Jesus. All of this, all, you, you're going to inherit all of these wonderful blessings provided you suffer with him. Jesus would put it this way. Whoever would come after me must pick up his cross and follow me. All throughout the New Testament. All throughout the, test, the New Testament, the, the testimony is the same. If you would follow Jesus, you must walk the same path that he walked, which means love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. When someone slaps you on the right cheek, you turn and let them slap you on the left. It means when they want to put you to death, you pick up your cross and you follow Jesus. That's the way we, and Paul's going to talk about this in Romans 12. We'll get there in a couple weeks. But at least I hope it'll be a couple weeks. But, you know, Paul's going to talk about this. This is how we overcome evil. By doing more evil? No. By doing good. Suffering with Christ. And you are a fellow heir with Christ, provided you suffer with him. Provided you are united with him in your ba- united with his death in your baptism. I mean, it's not just, hey, I got a get-out-of-jail-free card when I got baptized. That's how we tend to think about it, right? Hey, I got out of jail. It's like, no, no, no. You have adopted his death as your new way of life. This is the way you live. The way of the cross has become your new lifestyle. Now, thankfully, we live in a world, I say thankfully, we happen to live in a world where we don't, have to suffer the way a lot of Christians do today suffer and have suffered in the past. But sometimes I think we're so afraid of it that we don't really get it. Because this is the life that we've adopted when we were baptized with Jesus. Verse 18, for if I consider, for I consider rather that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So he says, listen, I know that sounds rough, you know, and I know you don't want to suffer with him, but here, this is what helps me. This is what helps me to deal with the present suffering because the present suffering this time is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's always how Paul talks about it. We tend to talk about going to heaven and we talk about, you know, somewhere up yonder and wherever yonder is, you know. So we we talk about stuff like that. But Paul tends to talk about the glory of God being revealed and us being glorified with Jesus. 
And I think we ought to adopt biblical language. When we talk about biblical things, we ought to adopt biblical language. So he says, listen, the glory that is going to be revealed to us, the things we're suffering right now don't even compare to that. Now, oh man, I got right to where I wanted to with too little time. For the creation, verse 19, for the creation, listen to this. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Paul has just gotten done saying, you, you're adopted as sons of God, right? Heirs. And he says, listen, what we're waiting for, the glory that will be revealed to us, and everything that will be given to us, and everything we will inherit, the creation itself is longing for that day. The what? The creation itself. Now, if you, if you, if you read through the whole Bible and you pay attention to this theme, you'll, you'll notice that it's, this isn't a rare thing. For the biblical authors to talk about the earth and the world and the creation as if it's a character in the story. In our class a few weeks ago, a few months ago, upstairs we talked about the Canaanites uh, being ejected from the land. It literally says the land, what? Vomited them out, remember? Yeah, I mean, land doesn't literally vomit anyone out. And the creation, it doesn't literally eagerly long for something. But Paul says, listen, the whole creation, all of it, all of it. All of it waits with eager longing for what you're going to receive. To see God do what he's going to do with you and for you. The sons of God, the creation itself waits with eager longing. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Do you remember the, crea- the, uh, the curse? Genesis, the Adam and Eve sinned, ate the apple, they were kicked out of the garden. Was it just Adam and Eve that were cursed? Was it just Adam and Eve that were cursed? Just mankind that was cursed? No, it was all of creation, wasn't it? It's was all of creation, even the ground itself. And God tells Adam, listen, now there's going to be thorns and there's going to be thistles and you're going to work the ground by the sweat of your brow and it's going to be hard. The animals and the people, everything was in perfect harmony. The land and the animals and the people and God and man and woman, everything was in perfect harmony. But now because of the fall and because of sin, because of rebellion, now there is animosity and enmity and strife. And Paul says, listen, the creation itself, it's eagerly longing because it's been subjected to futility. It's been subjected to a curse because of him who subjected it, but it, it was subjected, subjected in what? In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. What? Yes. The, the, cre- the creation itself is now cursed. It's in, it's in bondage to corruption. And we see that, don't we? Everything breaks down, doesn't it? Everything dies. Everything dies. Trees, constantly breaking down. Dirt, soil, minerals, everything. Everything has a, has a half-life, right? I mean, everything is breaking down. The sun is breaking down. Everything, everything is breaking down. It's, it's in bondage to corruption, just like our mortal bodies are in bondage. And Paul says, listen, the creation itself, it longs, and it, it, it will itself be set free from its bondage to corruption, and it will ips- itself obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. I'm going to end there. I think that's a good place to end. But listen, childbirth. (laughs) What is 
What's childbirth like? Well, groaning, right? Groaning, painful. But it's, it's anticipating something better is coming, right? It's not a pointless groaning. It's not a pointless pain. It's a pain and a groaning and a suffering that is anticipating something better is on its way. And Paul says the whole creation, all of it, personifies it like it's a person and it's longing and it's waiting for what? For for what you're going to receive, but itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Everything right now, everything in our world is breaking down and it's corrupted and is decaying. But soon, just like your spirit has been set free, just like your spirit has been redeemed, Paul talks about our bodies and the creation will also be set free. In in context, he's talking about this is what makes our present suffering bearable because we know what's coming. We'll pick up here next week. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we're dismissed tonight that we can think on these things. Father, help us to consider who you are and what you've already done for us and what the future holds for us, your children, and for all of creation. Father, we thank you for loving us and redeeming us. And Father, we, we do have moments where we suffer and we wait, we long. Help us, Father, to long with confident expectation. Father, thank you for your spirit who lives within us, who groans alongside of us. Father, thank you for your son who has saved us. And it's in his name we pray, amen.